MRI safety is at the forefront of our profession. It starts with protecting Zone 4 and is why the ACR recommends using a caution barrier at the Zone 4 entrance. But what good is another sign in a room full of signs? Well, Aegis has created the perfect solution with TechGate Auto. TechGate Auto allows more focus on the patient and less worries about someone entering the room without being cleared. If you're serious about MRI safety, use the link in the description below to find out more. Zone 3 Podcast, I am Robert. Yes, and I am Reggie. And we're joined by uh, Joanna Schechtel. Did I pronounce that right? <laughs> no, but that's okay. <laughs> no, I did. I, I spelled it like phonetically and everything. You all right, you great. tell me. Go you ahead. Great. What is it? It's Schechtel. Schechtel. Oh. Yeah, but that's all right. You were close enough. I'm getting a redo here. <laughs> 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 that's Katie's way of saying, eh. <laughs> That's, Everybody always says Shakta, so it's not it was, a big deal. It's all good. Uh, all right, well, we're continuing. Okay, so we're here today. First of all, did, uh, if you would just kind of um, give us your background, where you come from, yeah. all that sort of stuff. Sure. So originally, I'm from Maryland in uh, the D.C. suburbs, and so I moved around a lot in my medical training, bounced around from... Florida, go Gators. I was there for the Tebow years. Um, to Georgetown <laughs> for medical school and then nice. Philly for some of my training um, before I converted from general surgery over to radiology and then did all of my radiology training in Tennessee. And now I live in Nashville and that is uh, where I did my fellowship, which is at Vanderbilt. And so now I'm on staff as an attending and I'm an assistant professor there. So very cool. So you actually come very highly recommended from somebody we trust or not trust, but we, we trust them, <laughs> but we respect him is what I may say very highly. Uh, Dr. Uh, Frank Shellock. Yes. And Big I guess you guys out. met at Vanderbilt. Yeah. Yeah, we did. Uh, we met at Vanderbilt when he came to speak, we had a grand rounds and he was our speaker, came and talked about all of MRI devices and, um, safety with MR devices. And I think we bonded when we went out to lunch and we were shooting some raw oysters together and everybody else at the table was staring at us like, what are you doing? And <laughs> we don't want any of those. And we were just having a blast. So, um, I should probably like throw it up on your screen and give him a little throw up, uh, yeah, like, <laughs> a little shout out. But, um, yeah, we have pics of us kind of Raw uh, please send me those pictures, and we will put <laughs> oh, it up. Yeah. They're going to be right there. <laughs> I can do that. I can do well, that. And you wear many hats at Vanderbilt, too, right? It's part of safety and everything, right? Yeah, I do. I do. So one thing that's been really great about my job there is that they're extremely supportive of what I wanted to do, and they kind of do that for all of the attendings in radiology, where if you have some sort of special interest, they're very supportive of you kind of um, developing that and kind of going after it. And so when I was a fellow, I always thought, like, I'm going to be in private practice and make mm -hmm. that money. And then next thing you know, I was like, well, I kind of want to do this, that and the other. And they were like, all right, well, let's talk about what you want to do. And so I decided I didn't want to give up reading body MR. So I still read body every once in a while. I pick off of neuro because I didn't want to give that up. I read in the ER when I moonlight. Um, and then for the MR safety stuff, uh, my mentor back in residency, Dr. Peter Petruzzi, got to give him a yeah, shout out. He's shout been out. the uh, like the biggest proponent of my career and like the biggest 
impetus for everything I do in my career. Um, and he was the MRMD back at, in Knoxville. Um, and so he got me into MR safety and taking the course and the exam and all of those things. And so then I became the MRMD at Vanderbilt and they sponsored me to take that exam and learn from Manny Canal. And um, now I'm on the board of the ABMRS and all of the things. So uh, started and um, chair the MR safety committee now and definitely involved in in a lot of things. So, so ABMRMS, like that board, that's a recent development, right? Yeah, that was over the weekend. So just Congratulations. a couple of days ago. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, that's awesome. So um, yeah, very exciting. So can't wait to see what comes with that. Um, so I always feel like a little bit of a MRI nerd because I'm like, Oh my God, all of these people that I listen to their podcasts, like when I would go walk my dog and be listening to the MRI cast and Kristen and all, you know, Bill of Ochner and all of these yeah. people. And I'm like, Oh my God, now I'm going to be on the board with them. Like I, I don't know. It's kind of cool. Right. And um, only people who are MRI nerds would understand that kind of feeling. <laughs> well, I understand. I guess I'm yeah, a nerd. Red Jump is a nerd. <laughs> well, that's cool that you read neuro and body, but you kind of yeah. specialize in MSK, right? Yeah. yeah. And so we're actually here to discuss sarcomas today. Yes. And, uh, and that's kind of like a broad term, right? So like, how would you define that? So sarcomas um, are a like small subset of what we do in musculoskeletal imaging. Obviously, everybody knows about all the sports stuff that we do. Um, but sarcomas are this whole group of tumors that are both bone and soft tissue tumors. And so even though the treatments um, and the staging is, is different for the two subtypes, bone versus soft tissue, uh, the naming is the same and they're all considered sarcomas. Oh, nice. And there, how many types are there? I, it's like I literally infinite, have no idea. There right. are so many. And I feel like every single time we have a tumor board, there's another type of sarcoma <laughs> that I have never heard of before. But I think that's what happens with like right. pathology, right? They come up with a new stain and then they're like, oh, well, this tumor may or may not have this stain for this sort of marker. And so then all of a sudden they start reclassifying everything and renaming things. And right. um I mean, there's so many things like UPS, I don't think is a term we really use anymore. Uh. Undifferentiated pleomorphic sarcoma. Um, now it's just like <laughs> right? the, the names for them like keep changing and then we use the old names, but then we use the new names and I don't even pretend to keep up with it. I just shake my head and nod in tumor board and I'm like, <laughs> Imaging is concordant. Yes. I could have never been a rat because I can't pronounce half the words. But <laughs> I actually read that there's like 70 plus types, and I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I find that interesting. I mean, we see a lot just what we do. You know, actually, I find it interesting because I think some of the most challenging um, exams that we do can be MSK. And because there's so many variables to consider, what planes to choose, yeah. what sequences to pick from, uh, the, fields what body of view. Part you're doing. Oh yeah, yeah good point. Yeah. Yeah. And obviously, a sarcoma could be found anywhere in the body, right? Yeah, absolutely. So um, you've got all of your bone sarcomas and soft tissue ones that can be in all of the limbs, which then you're going to talk about, you know, right. the imaging field and planes and coils that you're going to use depending on what sort of size of lesion or size of body part we're looking at. But then mm -hmm. retroperitoneal sarcomas are huge. So liposarcoma oh. commonly lives in the retroperitoneum, and we would definitely image that very differently than we would a thigh sarcoma. Um, and then there's also sarcomas that will live in 
solid organs. So liver gets angiosarcoma, breast can get angiosarcoma. And so you can end up with all of these sarcomas all over the body. I mean, even neuro gets sarcomas in the head and neck and in the nasal cavity and in the paranasal sinuses. And they're all extremely different from one another, even though they fall under that same sarcoma category. And there could be contraindications with like metal or implants or whatnot, but if, assuming that there's not, is there a preference between say 3T versus 1.5? Um, I personally don't have a preference. Um, I'll, as long as the imaging is done well, I don't care. Right. Um, I, I care more about the imaging technique. What sequences did you run? What planes did you run? What was your SNR? What was your field of view? And I would much, much, much rather have a good like field of view and imaging technique on a 1.5 than a 3T with artifacts everywhere. Um, But that being said, obviously, if you have a really good 3T magnet, that can turn out really pretty as well. Um, But something that I've kind of come to think about recently is when we image these patients pre and post surgery radiation, and then we follow them for disease recurrence. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes it's nice to have them followed with the same technique over and over again, um, so that you're not trying to compare apples to oranges. Right. And so if your pre-imaging was on a 3T, but then post they have a huge mega prosthesis with ferromagnetic parts, and now you're like, oh, well, now I want to move them to a 1.5, and now you're changing how the tumor even looks and what you're looking for, that can be a factor also. Um, but when it comes down to it, 3.5 versus 1.5 or sorry, three versus 1.5 is not my biggest concern unless we're talking about a huge metal process. But duplicate the prior as much as you can. Yeah. Yeah. That's the hugest thing that, um, I think is like really, really helpful when our techs do is they notice like, Hey, this person's been here for their follow-up imaging every six months or every year, um, which is our typical schedule is six months to a year, depending on what their stage was and everything. And so when they can look at what the patient had done before and be like, all right, well, let's replicate those sequences and that technique, because maybe we we're following some little minuscule dot. And if we're doing the same thing again, we can see um, any like little changes and be able to say for sure that's not a change because of the change in imaging technique. Um, But then the other side of that, the flip side is maybe the tech can look at the images and be like, well, this patient comes back every six months and their images were garbage last time. So maybe let's not replicate the same technique and let's see what we can change to make this better. Because last time my rad talked about all these exam limitations and maybe we don't want to do that again. Yeah. I mean, we're limited on a lot of things when it comes to resolution and small fields of views and stuff like that. And so what would you say is more important, a small field of view or high res? High res, for sure. Especially with sarcoma, having a large field of view is actually what we want a lot of the time because, um, for example, one of our biggest thing that our surgeons will always want with our pre-op imaging is joint to joint imaging. So you may have a little three centimeter sarcoma in the middle of the thigh and they want that imaging to go from the hip down to the knee. And that's because they want to be able to see not only the extent of disease, but be able to do some pre-op planning. Maybe it's a bone 
tumor and they or it's invading bone and they need to do a big mega prosthesis and they need to measure from the joint down to that bone mm. what sort of size prosthesis that they need. And then also skip lesions are a really common thing in sarcoma, which means that the tumor um, doesn't necessarily just have like a little satellite lesion like other tumors will do, but it will mm. actually skip around the bone. And so you may have your primary tumor at the distal femur, but then it can skip over the joint and be in the proximal tibia, or it can skip and end up proximal in the femur and skip this whole huge area of normal bone and leave it alone. And then a second little tumor seedlet pops up. Um, and actually, if you want to pull up yeah. um, one of the slides to show that, so that's slide number five. So you were saying like boy, uh, joint to joint because that provides a landmark in addition yeah. to like, um, yeah. you know, whether it's relocated. But I'm wondering also is like if a person has a sarcoma, are they also more susceptible to having more sarcomas? And so it, it is yeah. good to provide more coverage? Yeah, so definitely. Um, so I'll just explain the slide first and then I can touch on that. So mm -hmm. this slide is showing on the left is the MR image. Um, it's a sagittal image, bone, uh, the whole long bone of the femur, the hip at the top and the knee at the bottom. And then the measurement is showing you the whole extent of disease that gets measured, not just the, the size of the tumor itself, but the size from the joint wow. to the edge of the tumor, because they have to figure out how big the prosthesis is. So then on the right, you see the post-op image um, where the measurement pretty much matches from the extent of disease versus the size of prosthesis they showed. And all of those little notches in that mega prosthesis are the different uh, modular components. So these things kind of look like a Lego set and they can pick different sizes and kind of put them together in order to get the correct size implant so that the patient's leg length can stay the same from pre-op. Because um, no patient's the same size and no patient's tumor is involving the same number of centimeters of bone as the next person. So this can be really individualized to the, the patient's uh, needs. And so to do that, we have to give them that joint-to-joint -joint imaging. Right. So um, then nice. to, to go back to... Pretty pictures right there, though. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, so to go back to what you were asking about when patients get one, they can get another. Um, that's one of the, the things that's really, really interesting about sarcoma is most tumors, when you think about lung cancer, colon cancer, skin cancer, there are all mm. these things that you're like, okay, somebody did something to end up with that cancer. They had a bad diet. They were a smoker. They oh, were a drinker. Right. They baked themselves in a tanning bed. Right. But sarcoma is not like that. So sarcoma doesn't have the same risk factors as a lot of other tumors. Mm -hmm. Being a smoker, a drinker, being obese, having bad diet, like those things are not big risk factors for sarcoma at all. Sarcoma oh, wow. risk factors actually come from having a history of radiation to the area is a big oh. risk factor, getting a second secondary sarcoma from a radiation bed, um, or just having a genetic predisposition. And there are so many syndromes that I won't pretend to know what they are. Right. Um, but those patients end up being really high risk. So one of the, the biggest ones that we do is Lee Fermani syndrome. And those patients are at really high risk for sarcomas, especially in adulthood. And the, uh, the majority, or at least a considerable proportion of those patients will end up with some sarcoma in their lifetime. And so that's why we do things like whole body MR screening for those patients. So there's probably a lot of research um, related to that as well, I would imagine. Yeah, there's definitely a lot of research that goes into 
the different genetic stuff um, mm -hmm. that the Medonc people really spearhead and do a huge part of. Um, and then when radiology comes into it, we're trying to do the research in terms of what sort of imaging protocols are the best protocols for these patients? How should they be screened? Because you also have to consider the fact that if people who are at risk for sarcomas um, have the genetic predisposition, but then radiation is also a key risk factor for sarcoma, you don't really want to be screening these patients with serial CTs, right? Because oh. now they're already at risk and it's kind of this like double hit right. sort of situation. And do we really want to give them a sarcoma by screening for a sarcoma? Right. So that's why MRI becomes this um, big factor in terms of screening purposes. Awesome. Yeah. And so you guys do a lot of whole body? Yeah, we do a lot. Um, cool. That's a program that I um, kind of took over over and really developed over the past year or two since becoming an attending. So when I got to Vanderbilt, we did whole body MR for myxoid liposarcoma, um, which we can get into like why you would do whole body MR yeah. for that. And then the pediatric side was doing whole body MR for um, CRMO and for these genetic predisposition syndromes. Um, but we weren't doing that on the adult side. And so there's this whole service that we weren't really providing. Right. And um, I developed that program and now we do whole body MR screening for Lee-Fermini syndrome patients and retinoblastoma patients and some other really rare syndromes where we're mostly looking for sarcomas in adulthood. I bet you've already found some value in that program too, Oh yeah, right? for sure, That's for awesome. sure. That's really um, awesome. It's been really good. And so at first I was so nervous with it because um, so many of them were negative and I was like... <laughs> oh my God, it's a whole body MR and what am I missing? Because right. like, there, you know, you could find a tiny little dot somewhere that, um, you know, you have to be really, really careful in these patients because they're at such high risk. Right. Um, but when you really look at the data from the whole body MR screening programs nationwide and I think worldwide, the data for adults is that about anywhere between 2% to somewhere around 7% and don't quote me on those exact numbers, <laughs> but somewhere less than 10% percent around the like two five percent range right. is um, the range of positive findings that you're expected to find on adults for screening in these patients so then I felt a little bit better it's that whole <laughs> idea with like mammo right like you oh, should be right. calling this many positives and this many negatives and you should and have this many not, callbacks right. and so th there should be a lot of patients who don't have cancer and that's why it's screening right, right. So. No, that's awesome well as far as risk factors you mentioned the genetics but also like radiation therapy is there anything else um, so there are some sarcomas that will have risk factors because of chemical um, exposure, but that's a little bit different. So then you can start talking about um, like thorotrast and all sorts of things for liver, for angiosarcoma. Oh. But the so bone and soft tissue tumors, to my knowledge, doesn't have that same risk like the liver does. But you would expect that the liver would act that way because it filters your blood that's coming from your GI tract and everything. But the bone and soft tissue don't really do that as much. I did have a question just mostly about uh, diagnosing, right? Is it, can you just look at an MR and be like, hey, that's a sarcoma? Or you need to go through biopsy, like you have all these steps you have to go through to say, hey, this is a sarcoma. Um, I feel like I, a lot of the times, you just know. You just, you just look know, at it and right? you're like, you know, you look like a duck, you quack like a duck, you're a duck, right? <laughs> like you look like a sarcoma, you're acting like a sarcoma, you're what a sarcoma. What are those properties though? Um, so, 
You've seen it so much, I can imagine. Yeah, so right? size is a huge one. Um, usually the size cutoff that we teach our residents and fellows is to when you can no longer definitively call something benign is like over five, six centimeters. Oh, I didn't Once know Once it that. hits that size threshold, you always start, you know, getting a little bit nervous. Right. Um, and then there are things like, for example, liposarcoma, which is a, a fatty tumor, right? Like right. it looks like fat. Well, we have all these rules where you compare it to the adjacent sub-Q fat, and you're like, are you the same as, similar to, or more complex than the adjacent sub-Q fat? And if you're more complex and you've got solid components and all these thick septa running through you, well, now you're starting to look like a duck and quack like a duck, right? right? right. Um, versus some people, their normal body tissues have a little bit of septations to their fat and they have a little bit of edema. And so if the fatty tumor looks the same as their normal sub-Q fat, well, now it's acting like normal fat and I'm not that worried about it. Right. Um, but those are two of the big things. Um, definitely infiltrating other, like not respecting soft tissue planes, like infiltrating... Uh other tissues so it started in the muscle and now it's in the bone or it started in the bone and now it's in the, in the muscle or right. it was in the anterior compartment but now we're spreading into the adductor compartment of the thigh now we're not well, cause I saw we're not being benign this one looks like at first you would think cystic and then you kind of move up the bone and then yeah. you see all this other stuff kind of going on within the bone okay. edema, so. so if you want to pull up slide 7 since you mentioned the cystic thing so yeah. this is one where when you look at the image on the left right T2 fats at image that big ball next to the femur you, it kind of looks like a cyst, right? right? It's super bright, T2, fluid, fluid signal. Um, but this is when contrast comes into a really big play because then you look at the one on the right and you're like, whoa, 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 it's enhancing. And oh, fluid right. doesn't enhance, Dang. right? right, right so right. Um, there's this whole group of sarcomas called mixoid sarcomas and mixoid soft tissue tumors. And what that means is it's the mixoid component, the fluid component, um, makes it look like fluid, and it looks super T2 bright. Um, and there are other tumors that do that too. Synovial sarcoma is one that commonly will do that, and there's a couple others that can fool you. And so you have to be really, really careful when you're reading MSK that, um, again, going back to the rules, you have to meet all of the rules 100% right. to be called benign and blown off and never looked at again, never followed up with serial imaging, never biopsied. Because Dang. if you break one single rule, now I'm worried, right? And right. that's the big, huge thing that we teach our residents and fellows is if you're not 100% benign, you cannot write this off as benign. And this is a perfect example sure. where it, it looks like a cyst, but then when you really, really window or pay close attention, there's little edema around it. Right. And maybe there's something that could be like a septation in it. And when you go and give it contrast, now it enhances. So we know it's not a cyst and that's a mixoid tumor right there. Um, quacking, that one's benign, right? right? So <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's quacking at you a little bit. Um, and I'm not saying that all of these things are malignant because they're not. There are right. tons of soft tissue tumors that haven't crossed over to malignant, but they're they're benign or they're locally aggressive sometimes. Um, but those things still need to go to a orthopedic oncologist, to a sarcoma center, um, which we can definitely talk about what that means too. Sarcoma but center, yeah. Yeah. They're, it's interesting. <laughs> there are these things that they, they need to get treated differently. Um, we don't want them to turn into what we like to call oopsie lesions. So. Oh, right. Oopsie. So is non-contrast imaging breaking one of those rules? Um, oh. so 
That's like point, only huh? having non-con imaging. Yeah. If there's anything that makes me at all suspicious, that patient will get called back for contrast, and I'll be contacting the referring provider. But you can't sure. say definitively that it is benign without contrast. Um, when it's a solid mass, no. You need you need contrast um, to be able to see the enhancement pattern and to really see the extent of disease um, for a soft tissue tumor. There are some cystic lesions that we can definitively call a cystic lesion, so something like a ganglion cyst, that you can see the neck of it going into the joint or communicating right. with, um, with the synovial cavity with a... Um, the tenosynovium of a tendon, you can definitely see it communicating 100% or a baker cyst behind the knee. It is between the medial gastrocnemius and the semimembranosus, and it's going to the knee 100%. That is what it is, and we don't need to do anything else. But again, going back to that whole hard and fast rule of 100%, it has to meet the, the criteria. If it's not definitively hooking up to the synovium of a joint or a tendon sheath, um, right. and it looks cystic, but it's not playing by the rules. Well, now we have to go give it contrast to make sure it actually is cystic, um, because it, it may not be. And I know MRI is, pre or is preferred just because of soft tissue imaging, but and you don't want to give uh, radiation, you said, but is CT adequate at times? If Yeah. So I think, again, it goes back to the idea of the soft tissue sarcomas versus the bone sarcomas, and we do treat them mm -hmm. differently. Um, so a little bit of abnormal marrow signal in a bone that um, has a soft tissue tumor, like say an enchondroma that has now divulged into a chondrosarcoma oh. and has had a change in the quality of its marrow replacement and now has a lytic component. Am I going to see that so much easier on MRI? Absolutely. Because MRI is far superior to assessing the marrow, right? right. Um, but then you take a soft tissue tumor and you just want to see what sort of soft tissue fascial planes is it invading and does it definitely look malignant? Yeah, I mean, we can use CT for that, but it's not quite as good this the soft tissue MRI's king MRI right? is where it's at so <laughs> well, what about like nuke med just like uh so nuke med has some problems with it when it comes to some of these tumors because it's not specific so it can be a little oh. bit more sensitive sometimes but not specific and the the example i'll go back to is the enchondroma right? right so one of the things um we would look to for these enchondromas is again following all the rules it's got to be less than like five to six centimeters it can't be marrow replacing it has to have little locules of fat interspersed within it and i can see that on mri i can't see that on ct mm -hmm. and then when you pull into the nuke med stuff and you're like okay well what about what if it's hot on bone scan or what if it's hot on pet? Well, I think it's something like 20% of benign oh. enchondromas are hot on bone scan. So that's not help helpful yeah. to me. And you can double check me on those numbers if you yeah. want to pull them up. But, um, <laughs> we got Google. But, yeah, <laughs> Dr. Google. Uh, but there are definitely tumors that are hot on bone scan or hot on pet and they're benign. And right. so it, it that is not the differentiator. A lot of what we're comfortable really calling benign versus malignant is on MRI. And that's important because that's what the surgeon's going to go after, right? right? Do they need, um, can they follow this lesion? Does the patient not really want it excised? Um, or if they do want it cut out, are we talking about a narrow margin or a wide on block excision? And it, it really does make a difference in the surgical approach. Um, and so if there's ever a question we're going to biopsy it, and we biopsy a lot of lesions to see whether they're truly sarcoma or not. 
Dang. If it goes untreated, will it just continue to grow? Like, have you, what's the biggest sarcoma have you seen? Really? Oh, you, um, ones that are literally invading and eating the entire thoracic compartment. Oh, wow. They took out like an entire rib cage and lung and growing. Like, they'll grow out of the skin um, oh, and become gosh. like fungating masses. And you look at these things and you're like, how long has this person been walking around right. like this, just ignoring it? But a lot of the times those huge fungi... Imaging Diversified offers monthly support subscriptions with daily phone support. This comes with optional yearly training, a dedicated app specialist, and quarterly image review for your site. Visit our website to sign up today. Dating masses are the ones that are so rapidly growing right. um, that by the time the patient comes in for the appointment, it's it's doubled from when they even made the the appointment to come in. Wow. Um, so a lot of those are really aggressive. Some people really do ignore their tumors and they just think like annual checkups, everyone. Yeah, like oh, <laughs> if I ignore it, like it'll go away, or I don't want to find out if I have cancer before Christmas. Right. Well, okay. And are Maybe they, not the best idea. <laughs> are they painful? Are they just hard to the touch? Like Yeah, so um, again, I'm not, I don't really see patients. I sit at my right. table in my reading room <laughs> with my music and my snacks what and kind my of water. Music? <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, um, if I had it my way, um, according to Spotify, it would be Justin Bieber all day, every day. Okay. I'm in his top 3% of all listeners worldwide. Um, I thought it was going to be Britney Spears, but alas. I'm a believer, apparently. Um, <laughs> but the people in my reading room will not let me listen to Justin Bieber in uh, day in and day out, so it's okay. Um, you know, compromise is great. Right. But, um, you know, for what I do know about seeing these patients, which is in no way, shape, or form anywhere near what the orthopedic surgeons and orthopedic oncologists and med-onc guys see, um, they're palpable when they're soft tissue tumors a lot of the time. Sometimes they're not. Sometimes they become painful, right. and that's how the patient presents is because of pain. And that's actually a warning sign. One of our it has to follow all of the rules things. Mm -hmm. um, a little tumor that looks benign, but the patient has pain there, and we have no explanation for pain. There's no arthritis. There's no tendon tear. Um, there, nothing like that. Then you have to worry that this actually is a sarcoma because that oh. is a common presenting feature. Dang. Well, you mentioned compromise. I feel like I'm jumping all over the place, but I am curious as far as like uh, post-contrast imaging, mm -hmm. how detrimental is it, say, if it is uh, an implant of some sort that you're not able to do a fat set? Uh, yeah. So non-fat set post-contrast imaging and how detrimental is that? And also like if you're unable to get a subtraction, if a patient were to move in between. Yeah, so um, obviously metal, yeah, metal <laughs> causes problems for fat sat, right? But we have right. ways, to, ways to get around that. Um, and we have dedicated metal protocols um, that we use um, for our patients, for sarcomas. And so if a patient comes in and they have a big hunk of metal, the techs know we have to use the metal protocol because there's no way we're going to get a T2 fat sat. It's not going to happen. Right. We're going to have to go to a stir, right? right? Or maybe we'll get lucky and a T2 Dixon will look good. Right. Um, and we can totally go off of that. So if I can, for these patients, use Dixon technique um, when they have metal, maybe it's a non-ferrous implant and we can get away with it. Mm -hmm. It'll still look like a fat sat, right? Because right. it is a fat sat. It's just not a spectral fat sat and right. so the different method will work really well for us and we can still get what the rest of the radiologists are used to looking at and they didn't know that's the technique that went into it right for sure. and so we just want everything to kind of look the same and um 
I, I want when the surgeons pull up the images, I want them to be able to look at them and be like, yes, that is where I need to go cut again. Right, right? confidence, or the, right? Right, yeah. um, but sometimes we can't do that and we have to do subtractions. And right. so we can pull up, let's see, slide number, where's my subtraction, 11. Um, and so this is an example of when subtractions came in really, really handy. This is a, a oh. non-malignant tumor. This is benign, but locally aggressive. It's a giant cell tumor. And so you do T1, um, with and without contrast and then run a subtraction. And like you said, the patient needs to not move and you have to use the same exam technique parameters. Don't be changing the TE yep. and the TR yep. and all of these things because then the subtraction isn't going to work really well and we want it to actually subtract true signal pre like post from pre um, or the other way around I guess is the way it goes um, okay. but if you change the exam technique and the imaging parameters well now you're putting signal in there that may be different than where we started from um, but this example that's up on the board right now in the top left corner the arrow is pointing to a little bit of tumor recurrence that's the lytic bubbly lesion in that radial styloid right there and the um, really dense stuff next to it is cement so when they went in initially oh. and kind of uh, curataged the lesion because it's benign, so they didn't have to do a big resection with an implant. They just go in and scrape out from the inside of the bone all the tumor cells, and then they'll pack it with cement and put a plate to keep it nice and secure. So the way that we follow these to look for tumor recurrence a lot of the times with metal um, and with these tumors is to look at the x-ray or CT to try to find that area that looks like the initial tumor, the bubbly, lytic, expansile lesion. And so that's what you can see there on x-ray. And then the one on the top right is um, trying to do a fat sat. And if you look at the corners of the image, you can see Excellent. where the fat sat is there. Yeah. And the whole rest of it failed, and there's metal susceptibility artifact everywhere. That is the most useless thing that right. I think I have ever seen. Um, but then when you go <laughs> to the bottom, and I know for our screen it's not projecting super, super well, but hopefully um, on the computer it is. So the arrow is showing you um, on the the bottom left image, that's the pre-con image mm -hmm. that it's um, not, it's this like soft tissue intermediate signal um, stuff. And then in the middle image, it, it enhances. And the best way to see that is then the image on the right, which is the subtraction. And you can see that there's some brightness to that because it's showing you the enhancement. Um, and because of subtracting metal from metal, that whole black hole doesn't really matter anymore. And we don't have to deal with the fat sat issues of trying to run a spectral fat sat around an implant. Um, so that's one of our new techniques that we've been doing whenever a patient has a metal implant is running T1 pre and post contrast axial and typically coronal phase would be our second plane right. and then running subtractions on both of those. Awesome. Do you guys do subtractions in neuro at all every once in a while? Um, if it's a similar I will, scenario? I will not speak to the neuro guys' <laughs> protocols because I actually okay. don't know. Um, like, I know I, I like to pick off their list, um, but, you know, I'm okay. reading a lot of Degen spines and then maybe okay. whatever comes in through the ER. Right. Um, so I actually don't know yeah. what our neuro guys are running. They have so many intricate protocols and techniques. Right. And our, like, head of neuro MR um, is incredible. I'll give him a little shout-out, Taylor Davis. Yeah. And I won't even prete pretend to know like all the <laughs> things that he knows and does no well so. and only i do some of our newer protocols at our job and you know i've only had maybe one radiologist ask for subtractions for the spine i would traditionally do them but we never taught people to mm -hmm. do it if we had pre-post spine you know um metal 
Uh, but I always thought it was valuable for instances like this. Yeah. But um, I never really had a chance to ask one of the rats, you know, hey, is this pretty important? Should I be sh- telling everybody to do this? So, But we just had one of our newer rats who we just came on board ask for that. I'm like, oh, okay, validate. <laughs> Maybe I can, like, you yeah. know, bring this up again. So. It's it's funny, though, like how the different subspecialties of radiology end up with these different techniques that then right. don't always um, get used in the other subspecialties. And I think that's right. what's been kind of unique about what, like, I've done when coming to Vandy is I do like to read everything, right? And so I'm like, oh, well, you know, in body MR, we do all this in and out of phase imaging to look at the marrow. Why are we not running in and out of phase on all of our sarcoma patients? Because marrow assessment is one of our key things that we need to be doing in all these radiation patients. Their marrow gets killed and it becomes fatty and then it repopulates with red marrow. And sometimes you're like, oh, well, there's a new spot. And it's like, is that red marrow repopulating? Or is that actually tumor coming back as a recurrence? And why shouldn't we just do in and out of phase? And so now we do. That's awesome. Um, And so same thing kind of goes with the subtractions, right? Like body loves using subtraction imaging for RCC really, right? for liver. <laughs> I think they, yeah, I think they just run it on everything. Um, their series are like 65 images <laughs> right? long series? and yeah. you open the study and you're like, oh God, is this a whole body MR? Um, but when you start pulling these techniques that other subspecialties have really perfected and bringing them into your own right. um, and adapting them for whatever you're trying to look at, like now you're providing this whole other subset of value that you otherwise would have missed out on. Right. So um, bringing us to the next one. So awesome. slide number eight, please. And I'm actually glad you brought up in and out of phase because I forgot to mention that. So I, I know like, for example, if we've seen a bone lesion, we're meant to run that on a without order. Mm-hmm. Um, and that could prevent a callback. Yeah. And so in that case, it kind of... Um, it's an argument against the necessity of contrast, right? Yeah, so um, contrast becomes, like we talked about, super, super important for soft tissue lesions. But bone lesions, you often don't need contrast, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there are so many different techniques we can do to look at marrow and to look at lesions that we don't need contrast for. And that even goes towards like imaging osteomyelitis, right? right. Like I don't need contrast to tell you whether you have osteo or not. I have to, I, I need contrast to that. tell you whether so, or not you have a surgical complication, like that uh, needs debridement or right. IND, you know what I mean? Like right. that you have an abscess or you have dead necrotic bone. I can tell you if you have osteo without using contrast. Just like a stir would tell you that? Just a, yeah, some sort of stir T1. or a T2 fat sat and a T1 non-fat sat. You need right. both because um, if something's bright, on, not to get away from sarcomas, but if something's <laughs> bright on like a T2 fat sat or a stir and not on a T1, now we're at the intermediate probability if there's an overlying um, ulcer. I'm, right. I'm not going to divulge oh, yeah, sorry. over to all that hey, nerding out. Uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, we can also do use diffusions is another oh, thing yeah. that we can do, That's right? Yeah. And so this example here is showing you um, the utility of in and out of phase. And this is why on our sarcoma patients, um, instead of doing a normal T1 spin echo in the coronal plane, which we do in an axial and coronal, um, now in the coronal plane we're running a T1 Dixon. And that's so we can get the in and out of phase and then the fat and the water images. Um, And so on the top left there, you're seeing the primary tumor and the proximal tibia. Mm -hmm. And what looks like is probably a satellite lesion um, at the tibia plateau. And then there's this little dot in the distal femur metaphysis that got picked up on this um, knee MR that then when the patient got their bone scan, you're like, hmm, 
uh, is that a dot? And I know that these things look like Rorschach blot images or however you pronounce the thing. Um, And you're like, well, there's like a white splotch and maybe that's actually (laughs) uptake and I don't really know. But you look at it and you're like, well, that's kind of in the same area, right? So is that a skip lesion? Did this skip over the joint and go to the distal femur metaphysis? And we talked about this in our sarcoma board and I was like, you know, why don't we just throw an in and out of phase on there and just see if this drops out and it's red marrow. And so that's exactly what we did rather than biopsying it or having them do a total knee arthroplasty, mega prosthesis, rather than just taking out the tibia. I was like, let's just do an in and out of phase. And so the bottom images, um, you can see the far left is the in phase. The one next to it is the out of phase. Mm-hmm. And there's tons of little splotches of red marrow and they get darker because of the, um, intracellular, intravoxel fat that they have. So the out of phase will subtract out all the fat signal and so it gets darker. And then the one all the way on the right is an arrow going to the actual tumor and you can see that that's not black like um, the rest of the red marrow was in the femur. It didn't lose signal because it doesn't have intracellular, intravoxel fat. It is tumor cells, it's not red marrow. So we are doing that routinely That's now. That's awesome. And to run it in and out of phase really isn't that long. No. Sure. Yeah. No, right? it's really not. So like to run the T1 Dixon is very, very similar in time to running a T1 fast spin echo. So why not get the extra information out of it? Oh, that's even smart. So instead of adding actual in and out of phase, just use the Dixon method that Correct. you're already running for your fat sack. Oh, so we're nice. not doing it in both planes. We're doing it in the coronal plane because the, awesome. the ideal plane is the axial to, for, to look at neurovascular invasion and um, to really look at like the, our high resolution images. So we kept the the T1 spin echo sequence in the axial, but we've um, flipped to, to using the Dixon on the coronal pretty routinely now. Nice. Oh, man. I like that. So Bringing value into, you know, area where it might not have been utilized before, right? Like, right. Yeah. Like you know, that. something we probably should have covered at the beginning of this was actually curious. <laughs> Because we're all over the place. <laughs> Too late to pump the brakes now. <laughs> I know. But there's stages, right? Mm-hmm. And there's also high grade, low grade. So right. can you kind of define what those are? Um, not as well as a pathologist, but I surely can. <laughs> so there, um, every single tumor has like what's called a TNN score, right? T uh-huh. is the, the tumor, N meaning nodes, lymph nodes, and M is metastasis. And so the T score then breaks down into tumor stage. And for sarcomas, um, whether it's a bone or a soft tissue sarcoma, whether it's in a limb or the retroperitoneum, the vast majority of the staging is based off of tumor size. Um, and so that's our cutoffs are five centimeters, 10 centimeters and 15 centimeters. And that's another reason why when we're, you know, teaching about whether it's benign or malignant five becomes a super important number. Um, but that's also like a staging number for, for centimeters. And then the other thing that comes into it, like you said, is the grade, right? So grading plays into, for some of these tumors, the stage, but it's not the only factor. And so grading is something that a pathologist determines when they do a, when we do a biopsy. So we do a biopsy, we give it to the pathologist, and they'll look under the microscope and determine mitotic figures and all these like nuclear mitoses, which I, I guess is the same as mitotic figures, and ne- percent necrosis and... All sorts of other things, and then they'll stain some stuff. I don't really know what they do, and I know that then tumor board happens, and they show pictures, and some of them look brown, and some of them don't, and I'm like... (laughs) 
that's stained positive. Um, <laughs> but I'm not going to even pretend to know all that stuff. But the, the key things is going to be size, um, mitotic figures, and percent necrosis for a lot of them. When you guys are writing your report and you're like, follow up for correlation, like, I don't know, six months, mm -hmm. does that play a role with the staging and everything? Or um, So that is what ends up playing a role in terms of when they look at like the tumor activity overall and maybe make a sometimes make a a guesstimate in terms of sometimes response to treatment is why we're like following things or maybe if oh. we're trying to guess whether we think it's benign or malignant right if we're on the fence and people aren't really sure and we left the tumor alone maybe let's see in six months did it grow did it change did it start to look different if it's starting to become necrotic maybe it's outgrowing its blood supply and that's a bad news oh, bear right. indication right, right. Um, or if it grew and it's doubling time is really high like I know the oncologists love talking doubling time. And if doubling time is really high, that's usually um, an indicator that it's pretty fast growing and aggressive right. and um, highly cellular and active. It kind of all plays into the same thing. Um, but then when we're following them after treatment, the reason why we have certain time intervals is just to be able to pick up on things really early. I so. see. So if it is like a post-resection and you're doing six-month year uh, follow-ups, at what point do you decide, okay, we don't need to do this anymore? Um, typically, that runs around 10 years, um, but that will come down to the orthopedic surgeon who did the case and also going back to like the, the stage and the grade and everything like that um, and whether they had radiation or not, um, whether it was a complete resection or positive, ne positive negative versus positive margin resection in the, in the beginning. Um, but I think 10 years is usually around the ballpark that we can leave them alone. Um, but right. then you have to get a little bit nervous because 10 years is also the point when secondary sarcomas, um, secondary osteosarcoma will start to pop up after radiation. Oh. So. Oh, dang. And that's radiation therapy mostly? Yeah. So um, it depends on like the the level of radiation that they got. But yeah, radiation therapy itself is there to kill tumor cells, right? right? And so they use it to kill whatever tumor is left in the bed and kind of do a general cleansing of the, the area. And any little tiny tumor seedlets they're hoping will die. But in the same count, you kill normal cells too. And in the center of that radiation field, things are going to die. But then on the borders of the field, they're not getting as high of radiation treatment as the stuff in the center did. So maybe they'll die. Maybe they won't. Maybe they'll mutate. Uh. Right. And so then you start with this whole idea of secondary cancers that come out of the radiation bed. And that would be another sarcoma. Wow. So this is probably not your wheelhouse. We're kind of on the subject right now. But as far as treatment goes, there's radiation therapy. Mm -hmm. You mentioned surgeries. Yes. Is there anything else? Yeah. So then there's also um, chemotherapy. And so oh, yeah. for that's why everything takes a multidisciplinary approach, right? So oh. every single week we get together and we have what's called sarcoma board. And after having a five minute trash talking discussion on fantasy football for our sarcoma <laughs> league, um, which I am also... Uh, the, the commissioner for, so I do wear many hats at Vanderbilt. Um, awesome. Are you crushing it this year? I'm not crushing it, but I did come from last place to make it into the playoffs. Oh. I'm getting destroyed by one of the medical oncologists in the playoffs currently, <laughs> um, but I did make it, nice. so, you know, that, warned, that's that. Right? <laughs> but after we have that little discussion, we, we do talk about these patients from a very multidisciplinary approach, the surgeon and right. the, the rad onc and the med onc and radio 
radiology and pathology and everybody kind of um, goes into the care of these patients because they do get treatment from all of those um, disciplines. Right. And for sarcomas, if they can be cut out, the primary um, like thing you want to do is be able to get a good margin negative oh, resection. So, you get it so all. surgery, yeah, get it all. Um, <laughs> surgery is the the preferred treatment method when able. Um, mm. And then depending on the stage and the grade and all of those things, they may end up needing radiation. They may end up needing chemotherapy. Maybe they can't get surgery and they can only get palliative radiation or chemotherapy. Um, but all of that stuff is is going to depend on how aggressive the tumor was and how big it was. So definitely we're, we're using that measuring tool and the pathologists are pulling right. out the measuring tool and we're looking for, is it over or less than five centimeters? <laughs> oh, nice. So. Do you do any uh, 3D imaging? Um, A little bit? Um, not really MSK, no, right? No, not really for MSK. What about okay. perfusion imaging? Um, so perfusion, we have not been doing. That was kind of a discussion in terms of uh, perfusion versus using diffusion. And it okay. came down to this idea of which one are we going to do? Because right now in um, sarcoma imaging, one of the hot topics is these adjunct imaging pr oh, yeah. um, protocols, right? right. The, the sequences like perfusion and diffusion. Mm -hmm. And the data, which I'll pull up my numbers so you don't have to Google them this time because I wasn't <laughs> going to pretend to really remember this number. But she came very prepared. Yes, we love this. That. Yes. Um, so when you add diffusion, uh, looking for post-op recurrence after um, they've been resected, and if you do your normal protocol with and without contrast, then you add mm -hmm. diffusion, like a DWI with the ADC, mm -hmm. it will increase the detection rate from somewhere around 50%, the number I've written down is 52, that came from one study, up to over 90%, um, up to as high as 97% in some of these studies. And oh, wow. uh, DCE does the same thing um, oh, for nice. in terms of increasing your rate of detection. It takes you from down that 50, 60 percent range up over 90 percent. And so from a time standpoint, you know, even though it's an academic medical center that I work at, like we're still, as I'm sure you guys are, too. Oh, yeah. Our schedule is chock full and we're scheduling, you know, weeks out and right. time on the scanner is a hot commodity. And yeah. so you don't want to be doing extra stuff and extra sequences that you don't need. So we came down to this decision of do we want to do DCE or do we want to do DWI? And it was my call and I picked DWI. Right. So. Right. Well, there's a shorter learning curve with the DWI. That's right? right. Yeah. That was what I thought, too, is I was like. You know, a DWI, if it comes out bad, we can do it again. Right. We can change the B value. We can shim right. differently. We can do all these different things to play around with it. But a DCE, if you miss it, you miss you it. You miss it, yeah. And we have so many inpatient versus outpatient scanners and different um, manufacturers and different ages of these scanners. And even the old scanners can run a, a diffusion. Right. Um, maybe not that well, like, you know. <laughs> right. But they can still run it, and not all of the scanners have that like DCE capability and like you said it's a little bit more tech intensive For and sure. tech dependent and we were like let's just try DWI and see what happens um not to say that they all turn out beautifully or right. not to say that I want them when there's metal involved, right? So all there's right. definitely throwbacks um, with trying to do a DWI with some of these patients. But Are you doing it mostly for soft tissue or for bone, would you we're, say? Currently, we're not differentiating one versus the other. Okay. We're running it on all of them. Do you kind of use the pretty much the same value, B value across the board then? 
roughly? Right now, yeah, we're running a B0, and I believe we settled on the B800. Um, okay. For our whole body, I think we're using 900. Um, okay. And then, as you know, body imaging uses 1,000, yeah. and then prostate using 1,500. Right. Um, but I think we settled on the 800. When we started going too high, um, the artifacts were getting really bad. The SNR right. was getting really bad. And we were already having some SNR issues with the coils that we use for some of the long bones and things like that. For so sure. it's definitely a work in progress and one of those things where I rely heavily, heavily, heavily on my good techs right. to kind of give me feedback on like why our diffusions aren't looking good. And that, you know, gets down to the coil and the voxel size and our slice thickness. And, you know, that's kind of why we're talking today about sarcomas is, it's so different than your general run-of-the-mill MSK sports imaging. We can't right. run the same slice thickness and the same, like, you know, no gap imaging that we do to look at menisci and rotator cuff tears. We really mm -hmm. have to image these things differently when you're looking at an entire long bone. Right. Um, time is a huge factor. And then SNR is the other. You, you can't run these tiny, tiny little voxels, you just don't have the, the signal to, to do that. Right. And in terms of time, because every patient has a threshold, if you had to like tailor an exam to a patient's threshold, like you can only get 20 minutes of imaging from this guy, what, what would you like Most prioritize? Important. Okay. So I know, right? <laughs> if it's a bone tumor, I want a T1 non-fats added, and I want some sort of T2 fats out or stir, in two planes, typically axial and then coronal. Um, and you want the long plane to put it in profile, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So another thing that's different from sports imaging, we're not imaging along the plane of the joint. We're imaging along the plane of the actual limb. So that's a little right. bit different too. There's not as many like coronal and sagittal obliques like you would do for say shoulder, rotator cuff, labral stuff. Um, sure. We're really looking at the plane of the, the long bone and the limb itself. So not so much um, the pathology, but the actual long bone itself. Correct. Okay. Correct. Um, and it, that also goes back to the surgeon, right? You, right? The whole point of doing this imaging is to help the, us make a diagnosis for the surgeon, right? Like we're providing right. a service to them and to the medical oncologist and radiation oncologist. And if, if we're giving them images that look nothing like what they are using or when they go look at the patient in the surgical field, right. we're not being helpful to them, right? right? We're only being helpful to ourselves, and that's pretty selfish. Right. Um, we're here to be consultants and to be partners in imaging with the people who are actually one-on-one -on -one providing that patient care. And so you have to think about that too, right? Like the that's reason we point. oblique our images in sports imaging for a shoulder is when the arthroscopist goes in and the orthopod is, is looking at stuff, they want to be able to see the cuff in the way that they see it. They want to see it in the plane of the joint that they're entering right. rather than in the plane of the actual bone where everything's crazy oblique. So right. when we're talking about these sarcomas, we're doing everything along the axis of the bone. So to get back to your initial question, because I'm super long-winded and talking circles. That was great. Um, I'm glad you brought that the, up. The priority for me for a bone would be a T1 non-fat sat and some sort of T2 fluid-sensitive fat sat, non-GRE for all of this, because I don't want anything GRE for looking at a bone. Yeah. And maybe one of those T1s, I would, I would put a Dixon in, right? Mm -hmm. um, and I probably would skip the contrast. And that would be all I would do. 
Um, maybe if they would let me have time, I would give contrast, but with 20 minutes, I'd probably take those four sequences and call it a day. Um, because again, these sequences for an entire femur, an entire humerus, they're really, really long. Um, so I probably wouldn't have much time given what you've, the parameters you've just given me. And then for a soft tissue tumor, it would be a little bit different. I may forego my T1 not in fat sat, and I may choose to just do like a T2 fat sat or a stir. And then, because a lot of the soft tissue sarcomas are bright on our T2 Mm -hmm. fluid sensitive images, and then maybe run like a T1 fat sat pre and post. And if I have time, Potentially, if the patient's not moving a lot because uh, they're an unruly patient that you just gave me, mm-hmm. uh, maybe throw a diffusion on there. But it's going to be a little bit different. Right. Well, I appreciate that you appreciate every patient's different because I feel like sometimes um, every radiologist has these expectations, but it's like, have you ever had an MRI before? Do you, you know, like, yes. have you ever had an MRI before? <laughs> yeah. So when I was in residency, um, we were putting in a new scanner and they needed some test subjects. And I was like, I volunteer as tribute, like, please scan <laughs> <tribute>. me. Um, <laughs> because how am I supposed to know that I'm dying of something on my ovary unless I'm already dead and it's spreading all over my abdomen? So maybe it's just me having a little bit of anxiety. But I was like, yes, please scan everything. So I got a brain MR, a cardiac MR, an abdomen MR, a pelvis MR. And then later, um, because I had hip pain, we threw in a hip MR and I do have a labral tear. Um, But don't let any of the orthopedic surgeons find out about that because I do not want it fixed. Um, But I was on the scanner for, I don't know, like two or three hours and I was just chilling. Um, It's awesome. Fun fact, at the time, I was like a first or second year radiology resident and I didn't know that a lot of the body imaging is respiratory gated. So I thought if I breathed really, really slow and calmly and shallow (laughs) that that like my images would turn out pretty because I wasn't moving and having respiratory motion. Um, So some of them when they were like, you know, breathe normal. I did not. And I probably caused the sequence to be like 12 minutes long. (laughs) So um, to all the techs back at UT, I'm really sorry I took up your scanner time, but um, I didn't know. And so for me, I don't know. I liked being a subject and I thought it was fun, but I can definitely see how you can get antsy laying there, how the noises are like very disconcerting sometimes, thumping around with all the gradient switching, Um, somebody who's claustrophobic who gets put in a cage around their face. I I can see 100% how some people freak out with that. Or Um, somebody who just has a bad shoulder and has to do a Superman position. Yeah, Yeah. doing something. Yeah, Yeah. or somebody who's got back pain and then they're having to lay on this stiff table. Um, Or, you know, some of our frail elderly people patients or just thin patients we keep it cold in there oh yeah on purpose yeah. right for safety reasons and yeah. then they're cold and they're shaking Shivering. and then they're messing up our scan and we're repeating right. stuff and i, I kind of feel for them because i'm always cold so. <laughs> <laughs> well i think you see the worst of it and that's probably why you're like scan me because right. i want to know but yeah you see the person who shows up and they've got mets everywhere from the melanoma that oh. grew under their toenail and you're like oh god that's gonna be me right those days in the tanning bed in high school are gonna come back and get me <laughs> <laughs> I can just <laughs> Well, was there a reason why you went MSK when you went to do your fellowship? Yeah. um, So originally, I actually wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon. And that was always the dream since I was 
four years old, probably. Um, everybody always says, you know, when I was really little and the kids have the project of what are you going to be when you grow up? And people are like an actress and a model and a singer. And I was like, a surgeon. <laughs> I'm like, here's my project. And <laughs> I was a crazy person and I swore <laughs> that was what I was going to do. You got proud and, parents, though, I'm sure. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was a huge nerd, but um, <laughs> I just knew that was what I was going to do. And I went to med school with the purpose of, like, becoming an orthopedic surgeon. And then, um, you know, within two weeks of being an intern, I was like, man, this life sucks. Yeah, <laughs> and, um, yeah kudos to them. They right. work really hard and they work with a lot of people and I realized very quickly I think I'm meant to be in the reading room with my water and my snacks and my music and my Justin Bieber (laughs) and I think I can provide a better service to the patient being a radiology consultant than I can actually being their surgeon and plus um, if you've ever been in an OR it's extremely cold in there oh yeah and it was not comfortable. I was not a fan. Right. <laughs> so. so our MR rooms, by the way. <laughs> yes, that's true. But I don't. I don't have to work in there. I work in a reading that's room. That's true. Right. You know. Right. But we do. <laughs> yeah. Zone three, to be specific. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I don't know. Is there anything we haven't covered yet? I know I'm looking at your outline right now, which um, is very helpful, by the way. Yeah. So tons of things we can totally get into. So, um, I know we talked a bit about like having a multidisciplinary team and how that's so integral for these patients with sarcoma. So for people out there, I would say, you know, when you come across these lesions, if you have any question that something is a sarcoma, send it to a sarcoma center. Um, The worst thing for a patient is when they get a biopsy that is not along the plane that an orthopedic surgeon would cut into or a general surgeon, you know, like one of the the surgical oncologists are going to cut on. And now they have to go trying to make sure that we're not going to have a a seated tract from a a biopsy that was not in the plane that they're doing surgery on. Or maybe a biopsy went through the muscle that they wanted to use for their flap. And now they can't use that as a flap because it's contaminated. And then the other situation is people thinking, like we showed the cyst case, that something's a cyst or it's benign. And they just go to cut it out but then it's an incomplete resection. And that can be the difference for a patient having limb salvage or not, or being able to not need radiation, um, because really getting that full resection from the get-go is totally paramount for the patient. So if there's any question, send them to a sarcoma center. Um, There's, I think, like 200 or so of them nationwide, and there are places where you do imaging for sarcomas at least 50 new patients a year. And at Vanderbilt, we had um, about 350 or so this past year. So send it to people who do this all the time, who know how to manage these patients. For Um, sure. It's definitely key. And then to go along with that, like having the whole team is so important and having the whole history is so important and really knowing like, did this patient have surgery or have radiation or did they have chemo? Are they on a treatment holiday? Um, That's how we're really going to be able to interpret those images and, and know what to say about them because calling something a treatment response, um, if they're not on treatment, is sometimes embarrassing, and I will pull up a case of one of mine. Um, Slide number two. So this case um, on the left is the tumor, 
And on the right is, um, I want to say it was like three or four months later. Look at my notes. Four months later. And the arrows are pointing to the tumor and then a tiny little T1 bright spot in the gluteus maximus muscle, which is a hematoma. Mm -hmm. And it has a little T2 or T1 dark. And also it was dark on T1, little hemocytorin ring. It looked like a little hematoma. So I was like, oh my God, they cut it out. And now there's a little post-op hematoma. And that is actually what my report said. And is it extremely embarrassing because uh, this patient actually never had surgery. So this oh. is a really, really pronounced treatment response to chemotherapy. So they decided to do neoadjuvant therapy and this patient was getting chemo and it responded wow. so avidly that the tumor literally disappeared and left a tiny little hematoma behind. And then they were like, all right, now we're ready for surgery. And the surgeon went in and cut out that little area. Um, so it just goes to show like, not only do you really need the whole team, but you really need the, the input from the patient's medical record, um, what treatment they've had, if any, um, because right. it plays a huge, huge role. And so then you can go to the next slide on slide three. This one is another case where, again, knowing the history is critical. So you can see in those top two images, um, the arrow is pointing to this little wiggly T2 bright line yeah. with some edema around it. And when you look at the corresponding T1, that's muscle. But you're like, wait a minute, why is there muscle right underneath the skin? And where'd my sub-Q fat go? Right. And that's a muscle flap. So that's a reconstruction after surgery. And this patient had like a little palpable hard area and it was painful. So of course, everybody's worried that this is going to be a local tumor recurrence. And what it actually is when you look at that coronal on the bottom right is that's the musculotendinous junction of the muscle that they used as a flap. So they actually had a tear. Um, so it's just a traumatic oh. tear along the flap from um, where their reconstruction was. And you can see the measurements on the bottom left image of where it was enhancing. And it's this plaque-like enhancement um, that corresponded to the inflammation from the traumatic injury. And it can definitely mimic recurrence, but this actually got biopsied because it persisted for three months later and totally benign. Um, but being able to know what surgery was done, what treatment was done is key. Understanding um, the history, right? Yeah, and then the last one that I have as an example of this is the next slide, slide four. Um, so this one is a patient who you can see the top left, that's their oh, initial wow. tumor, big big tumor there, um, soft tissue in the anterior compartment of the thigh. Wow. And then it got surgery and was cut out. And then um, they had radiation. And so you can see the arrows on the bottom right is denoting the top and the bottom of the radiation field from where that tumor was. And you can see that the edema um, is exactly in the radiation field because the tissue around where the radiation is is going to be responding to that damage yeah. um, and that also will get enhancement from contrast and so we have these special keywords and everybody will make fun of radiologists for the vocabulary that <laughs> we use and they're like why do you use these certain words and part of it is we're talking to each other mm -hmm. um, so that we know when we're looking at follow-up imaging what we were and we're not actually concerned about so in something like this I'm going to call feathery enhancement or in the one before this slide with plaque-like enhancement and we mm -hmm. use those terms to say 
I think this is benign, I think this is related to post-op change or radiation change versus when we use terms like mass-like, nodular enhancement. Now we're telling people we're worried about this. And part of it right. is, again, we're telling ourselves, right? If I go to read the same patient six months later, I want to know if I was concerned really, really closely following one area or not. For sure. So it's not to confuse the AI algorithm from, you know, getting in there and being able to read it itself, right? No, I'm just <laughs> yeah, no computer's going to take my job. I know, right? <laughs> so that's not why it's nice to have priors, though, when you're able to. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you really need the priors um, to compare to. And I know we kind of touched on this back in the beginning, but it goes back to the whole idea of, you know, trying to keep some consistency in terms of your imaging sequences and parameters right. and the whole technique. Um, so that we can see, comparing from prior to the next, how are things evolving? And especially when a patient has had radiation like that, being right. able to see the expected evolutionary changes. Because oh, sure. we know that once they get radiation, it's going to be bright on T2. It's going to have this feathery enhancement. And we know that that should go away over time. Um, but if it doesn't and we get a new spot of enhancement, but they haven't had treatment, well, now we're starting to throw up some red flags and oh. that becomes an issue. And so you're like, oh, well, this looks plaque-like, but nobody's touched this patient or give them treatment in two years. I'm concerned, right? right? So it's the whole package together in terms of um, what imaging are you, like sequences are you running <coughs> and what treatment have they have or not had? How long has it been? And then what did it look like before? For sure. Wow. You can't really look at anything in isolation. Right. So no computer will ever take it. <laughs> One more time. I love that. <laughs> that note, right? The computers are listening. <laughs> I hope they feel threatened. <laughs> We're going to have an audio issue right then. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That is interesting, though, because I have heard that before. But um, so I imagine you also kind of dive into the patient's chart as well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The integration is absolutely key. And I'm so, so, so thankful that where I work, when I pull up a patient's imaging, it immediately launches their their chart. And yeah. I'm not going to use anyone's name, but, you know, it launches right. the chart of um, all of their medical record. And I immediately can look at everything and then... Um, sometimes there are special ways that you can link and read some of their notes from other providers if it hasn't been sent over yet. And all of that is absolutely integral. Right. Um, it's such a hinder to trying to interpret these images when you have to, um, at some institutions, you have to log into like five different medical records and yeah. different systems because every clinic is on a different system. Yep. And you're like, oh, well, Radonc uses a different thing than surgery uses a right. different thing than the, the Even hospital Even software levels of some of those different it's things insane. too. Yeah. yeah, nothing talks to each other. So then... 20 minutes is spent just trying to figure out what has this patient even had done. Right. Um, but I will say that having that teamwork is amazing because there have been several times when I will put a study into draft and I will pick up the phone and I will call the surgeon. I'll be like, what did you do? And can you tell me what you did? And I'm seeing this. And did you put something in there? And, right. you know, what sort of flap did you do? And... All of that stuff is so, so, so key because there are definitely times um, that I have questioned what something looks like. And when the surgeon gives you the history of what they actually did um, and what they're expecting to see, then it's a lot easier to let something go. For sure. Awesome. 
Well, so. is there anything exciting that you're looking forward to technology-wise when it comes to MR or just radiology as a whole? Yeah, so for MR, one of the things that I have really gotten into is the whole body MR imaging like yeah. we talked about. And so what I'm really excited about is a lot of the new coil technology oh, nice. um, that's coming out with a lot of the different vendors having these um, really light coils and coils that can be used um, for all different parts of the body without having to have dedicated shoulder versus wrist yeah. versus you know foot and ankle. Like right. one thing, you can wrap it around anywhere. It's flexible, it's great, and you can just use it in a very versatile approach. And then the other thing that I'm looking forward to with those coils is having the uh, padding and insulation built into the coil uh. um, because also being into MR safety um, and kind of leading with all of that you know, burns are the number one oh, yeah. issue that we deal with in terms of problems with MR um, from a safety standpoint. And so, some of these uh, sarcoma imaging sequences are really, really high heat. We're running a ton nice of yeah. fast spin echoes, like all of these like spin echo sequences, one after the other, after the other, we're not giving them a break with gradients like the body and the neuro guys are doing sometimes. For sure. And we're running like a huge field of view off of a whole thigh. And so you're talking about, we're pumping a ton of heat into these patients and our patients are getting bigger right. and burns are getting more and more likely. And so being able to have that padding in the coil technology, I think is awesome. Right. Um, so, and I'm sure for, for you guys, you like that sort of stuff too, oh, you know, sure. not having to take extra steps for, for safety because it right. makes your job easier in it's time. It's a big part of our job. Just Yeah. yeah. Um, it's a hard conversation to have when something like that happens with the patient, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and, you know, these, for something that can be preventable too, it makes it even tougher. So whatever we can do to prevent that from happening, it's always the route we want to go. Yeah. For sure. And I, I like agree. that you're conscious of that because that's probably the reason why Shellac thinks so highly of you. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I see why. You're very smart, by the way. Yeah, Thank and you. funny. I'm impressed. Funny. <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad I could be of entertainment. <laughs> Um, I don't know, Reggie, anything else? I think we got to ask her most rewarding. Yeah, for sure. So we ask everybody, what's been your most satisfying or rewarding experience of yeah. your healthcare career? Um, so Coming to zone three, right? Yeah. I mean, this is the highlight for sure. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, um, maybe it's because I initially like wanted to be a surgeon for so long. But the biggest highlight I have had so far was when I just graduated from fellowship and I had uh, stayed on as an attending at Vanderbilt. And I was in this uh, full reading room with residents, fellows, my co-attendings and everything. And, um, you know, it's the the first year residents job to answer the phone and they answer the phone and they're like um, talking to the surgeon and then they put the phone on hold and they go Joanna the phone's for you because the surgeon asked for me um, not because oh, there nice. was something wrong with my report that they were like we need you to put an addendum but because <laughs> they were like trusting me and they wanted my opinion and they wanted me to play a role in the patient's care um, and that to me was like I made it, you know, right. um, that I actually mattered because I think it's the huge, huge fear of radiologists is to sit in a room and burn and churn, as we call it, and get through hundreds of films in a day and feel like nobody even read my report, right? right. Half the time I read an ICU chest x-ray, 
they've already rounded on the patient and they right. didn't even read what I said. Or sometimes there are cases where, you know, the orthopedic surgeon is just as good at reading their EMR as I am. So what do they even need my report for? And some surgeons aren't even using radiologists for that anymore. And then there's the threat of the bot taking over the oh, job, man. right? <laughs> um, which some people are like, are saying is a legitimate fear for some stuff, but I right. think that they're just going to find pulmonary nodules for me and I don't want to do that anyway. Right, exactly. um, but to me, it's like, I've had all of those fears, but then when you're really like, okay, I'm important and I made a difference to a patient that I never even met, yes. that, that to me was it. That's awesome. That well, was like, this is why I was a doctor. That's great. Right? Kind of your wheelhouse is diagnostic imaging, but yeah. that translates to therapeutic care. Right. Yeah. So that. Yeah. And that's not to say that, you know, my team and I don't also do intervention. Right. So oh, I'm right. not an interventional radiologist by trade by any means. Um, so I don't do any of their higher level, like biliary and vascular work, any of mm -hmm. that stuff. But we do still do the biopsies. And I think that that's really um, something that's nice that we provide for the patients because, you know, we look at the imaging and then it's the same team that's looking at the imaging that's also doing the biopsy because right. we're also the same team that's working with the surgeon that knows their surgical approach. So a lot of the times the surgeon will send a picture of this, you know, arrow here. This is the track I want you to take for the biopsy biopsy um, so that it's on their surgical plane and then under either ultrasound or CT or very rarely fluoro um, will right. go in and like do those biopsies. So I am heavily involved in that and that's part of like the training that I do with the fes uh, the residents and the fellows. Nice. So. Oh, cool. In your role as MRMD, do you ever kind of have that conversation with ordering physicians about the necessity of contrast? Like you mentioned osteomyelitis. I see that order with contrast all the time. Yeah. You said it's not necessary. It's not necessary for the diagnostic diagnosis of osteomyelitis, right? But it is important in terms of surgical planning. If a patient's going to need IND for an abscess or if they have necrotic bone or if it's chronic osteo, it becomes really helpful. Or if they've already had a debridement, it becomes really helpful. Uh. And I think that I'm probably in like that new group of people that's maybe a little bit more lax in terms of giving contrast. Um, I'm very much in the group of, you know, if it's a group two agent, um, it's okay to give contrast even when the patient is, um, you know, yeah. black box warning. Like right. not to say that the black box warning isn't legitimate, but that came from contrast that we're not using anymore, you know? And so, sure. um, like it was news to me when I actually read the package insert, like a couple months ago that, um, the brand of contrast we use that I won't use the brand name cause I don't actually know the generic name, um, is actually dialyzed off. And I was always taught in residency that dialysis doesn't remove gadolinium. And then the package insert was like, well, after three bouts of dialysis, 97 or 98% of this is removed from the patient's body. And on the first run of dialysis, it's over 60% gone. Right. So now I'm not as concerned as, as like the fear that was struck into me. So um, from a safety standpoint, I'm probably not as concerned about gadolinium as some other people uh, right. may be, um, but that's because to me, everything is a risk benefit analysis, right? right. Um, so if the benefit to the patient is whether or not they're gonna keep their toe in osteo or whether they're gonna need an amputation in it or not, 
or if the benefit is whether or not I can say for certain that this patient has a teeny tiny small tumor recurrence um, because the diffusion is going to fail with all the hardware and I need to see that tiny two millimeter dot as it pops up. I'm going to give them the contrast because right. the benefit to the patient is higher than the risk, um, regardless of what their renal function is, right? right? Or regardless of the risk of it being deposited in the the dentate nucleus and right. gadol, like, as long as it's whatever. purposeful, right. and you're right. confident in that. Exactly, but I mean, I feel the same way about. Um, all of the other safety stuff when it comes to unknown implants and off-label stuff. And um, so thankful for, you know, right. Manny Canal right. and his whole team and all the, the things that they do to kind of educate on that because for I sure. think it's always going to be a risk-benefit analysis. Like nothing in medicine is without risk, no surgery is without risk, no MR is without risk, right? right? right. Um, but it just, it comes down to that whole balance every time. For sure, great answer. Yeah, Katie, we miss anything? You're awesome. Yes. Thank you. I'm going to try one Joanna. more time. Joanna Shechtel. There you go. Yes. <laughs> we'll end on that. Zone 3 Podcast, Reggie. No. Thanks for watching. We appreciate all our subscribers. All the love you guys are giving us week after week. And, uh, man, it's another great episode. Zone 3 Podcast. We are out. Good. The information and comments provided in the Zone 3 podcast and website are not intended to be technical or medical recommendations or advice for individuals or patients. The information and comments provided under the auspices of Zone 3 podcasts and their guests are of a general nature and should not be considered specific to any individual or patient, whether or not a specific patient is referenced by the physician, technologist, individual, group, or other entity seeking information. Zone 3 podcast may provide links or references to websites. Such links are provided as a convenience to our listeners seeking more information on topics. These websites are not affiliated with Zone 3 podcast, nor do they endorse or manage content discussions unless otherwise stated during recording.